0: So have you ever thought about how cool it would be to meet Jesus face to face? Like, I mean, you guys, uh, those of you who are online, I mean, you know when you, you're, you're struggling in your faith a little bit, maybe, maybe you're going through something and you've been praying and praying and nothing, no answers, um, or you just, I don't know, you're just feeling really doubtful or down or whatever. How cool would it be to draw upon like an actual meeting that you had with Jesus face to face. Like you could actually remember back to a time where you had walked with Jesus, you had spent time with Jesus. I don't know if that's something that you've ever thought about, but, but I have. And I kind of romanticize the, the whole thing because, you know, I just feel like if, if, I, if that could have happened, right, if I could have actually spent time with Jesus, like it would be good. I, I would have no more issues, no more struggles, no more doubts. Everything would be fantastic. But you know what's interesting is that I'm not sure that that would even do it for us. So we're going to look today at a guy in this Unlikely Heroes series that we're in, uh, a guy who spent more time with Jesus probably than any other human being aside from Mary, the mother of Jesus. And yet, even with all that time spent with Jesus, he did not believe in Jesus during his lifetime we're talking about none other than James, the brother of Jesus. We read in the tax collector Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, verse 55, that Jesus had four younger brothers. His brothers were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And so in order of um, birth order, we see that James is the oldest of those four. So this means that James was the number two boy in the family after Jesus. And If if Jesus really was God in human flesh, which I know that's that for for some of you here today, you're just walking into church like that's that's a big reach, but but that is what Christianity upholds, that Jesus was God, then what that means is what it says in Hebrews chapter four, verse fifteen is true that Jesus was tempted in every way because he was fully human, so he would have experienced all the things that as humans we experience in this life, so tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. He was perfect because, after all, he was not only fully human, but he was fully God. And, you know, when we think about this, uh, oftentimes we think about it in terms of Jesus in adulthood. You know, we read those gospels and, um, and we read about Jesus in his earthly ministry. And I mean, he, he's perfect. He's never doing anything wrong. But let's think for a minute about Jesus in his childhood. And particularly, let's think about what it was like for that number two son, James, the younger brother of Jesus. So here you have your older brother, Jesus, and he is perfect In every way. I mean, it's it's pretty cool for us to think about, but would that be cool if you were like the number two brother? You've got a perfect older brother. He's never sinned. He's never made a mistake. He's never not brushed his teeth when his parents asked him to. You know, he's never told a lie. He's never taken that extra cookie from the cookie jar. I mean, literally perfection. He is the golden child. So for James, you got to think that this would have been tough. I mean, yeah, his brother never bullied him or did anything really, really mean to him. But you've got to know that Mary and Joseph just loved Jesus. Because, I mean, Jesus was like, he was no maintenance. Everything that he did was just like, they knew always where he was going to be, what was going to be going on. I mean, Jesus was perfect. So we don't have any record of of any statements like this in the Bible anywhere, okay? But just, you cannot tell me that Mary and Joseph never once turned to James and said, James, why can't you just be more like your brother? I mean, you know, all through childhood growing up, you know that had to have come up. So we're, we're just speculating here, but I think it would have been pretty darn tough to grow up with a perfect older sibling. We only get one glimpse of, of Jesus in his boyhood. And that is in the gospel of Luke chapter 2 verses 41 through 49. Let's take a look. It gives us a little window in. It says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. This was a four-day journey on foot from Galilee. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, While his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. So, and and this makes sense that Mary and Joseph would have been unaware of it. Because after all, Jesus is perfect. I mean, he's always where he's supposed to be. You know, he never makes a mistake. So, so they're just thinking, of course, we're getting ready to leave the festival. Of course, Jesus is gonna be with us. So they probably didn't even think to check. They probably didn't even talk to Jesus. He just, Jesus is gonna know because he's Jesus, he's perfect, he's always doing the perfect thing. And so they take off and just assume that Jesus is. Is with them. Verse 44 Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. So you're like, well, how is this possible? How could they lose Jesus? I mean, you know, there's just a few folks in the family. Well, here's the deal. There would be thousands of people who would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you'd have caravans of people all traveling together and relatives and everything. So it was very plausible that they just figured Jesus would travel with some of his cousins or you know, nieces or aunts or whatever. Somebody else uh, is where he was traveling. And so they, they, they can't find him. They start looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they can't find him, it says, verse 45, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. So a day journey up, a day journey all the way back. And then it says after three days they found him. All right. So I think that's five days that Jesus was missing. Now, I don't know if we have any parents out here who ever lost a child or like if you've ever been responsible for like a younger sibling or something and you've ever lost them. I mean, that's terrible. Okay. But imagine if you've lost the one that the angels came and said was going to be the savior of the world. Okay, this is not good. This is not a good moment for Mary and Joseph. So it says they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard Jesus was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, you got to feel for Mary. I mean, this is the first time in Jesus' whole life that they've ever had an issue. I mean, they they're astonished; they cannot believe it. What is happening, Jesus? How could you do this? Now, you got to think James is loving every minute. Of what's going on. I mean it's five days. Mary and Joseph are freaking out. And James is like. I've been waiting for this my whole whole life. Finally the perfect child Jesus. He finally screwed up. This is awesome. Let him have it mom. You know just give it to him. So after this exchange. This is what Jesus says. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know? I had to be in my father's house. Now, Jesus, we take this that he's not saying this in a disrespectful way, but just kind of more as a statement of fact. And what we know, this is so significant when he says, in my father's house, when he makes that statement, what he's actually doing there, and we read this in, in John chapter 5, verse 18, is that by calling God his own father, he says, my father's house, by calling God his own father, he's making himself equal to God. So this is actually him declaring, I'm equal to God. Massive thing. You gotta remember, this. he's 12 years old. 12 years old. And he's making this statement. So what this means is, at the age of 12, Jesus fully understands who he is, and why he is here. And so when he turns to his parents, not disrespectfully, but just as a matter of fact, and says, I didn't, how didn't you know this? I mean, don't you remember when the angels came before I was born, you know, and they, they said, I mean, you remember all that, right? Like we came to Jerusalem and I mean, I had to be here. I had to be in my father's house. You didn't, you didn't understand this. You just assumed that I was going to, I mean, come on. I can't imagine how disappointed James was. <laughs> he was having a conversation with his mom and dad. They're like, actually, it's kind of on us. You know, your brother's still perfect. That, that must have been a terrible moment for him. So that was age 12. We fast forward all the way to age 30, when Jesus begins his ministry. And uh, we read in Mark's gospel... The first three chapters, I'll just give you a quick summary of what's been happening. So um, Jesus has been healing all kinds of people, and um, not just healing people who are sick and healing people who are lame and with different diseases, but um, it says over and over again that he is casting out demons, okay? He is like speaking to evil spirits and casting them out of these people, and and folks are like, what is going on? Like, talking to demons he must have a demon i mean how, how how does that whole thing work this was just this was just crazy not only that jesus heals this guy and then he turns to him and he goes and your sins are forgiven i forgive you of your sins now i mean only god can forgive sins so i mean jesus again he's making this claim that he is god Jesus is uh, walking along. He comes across a tax collector, the most despised people in the Jewish nation, because they essentially were working with the Roman authority. They were a traitor to their own people and were extorting their own people, collecting taxes from them. And he turns to this tax collector named Matthew that no one would have liked. And he says, hey, come on, man, follow me. You're going to be one of my inner circle of 12 disciples. And he's healing people on the Sabbath. You can't heal people on the Sabbath if you're Jewish. I mean, it's a law. This is handed down from Moses. You can't work on the Sabbath. And he's doing all sorts of work. Now, it's good work, but man, everybody's upset. So, I mean, Jesus is turning everything upside down. And in the midst of all this, crowds of people stirred up. The most controversial figure. In Mark chapter 3 verse 21, it says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. They went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. How'd you like someone to say that about you and your own family? Maybe somebody has, and it's bringing up a bad memory right now. But this this is what they were saying about Jesus. After that, we see his mother and his brothers, his dad is probably dead at this point, his mother and his brothers go down to figure out what in the world is going on. He's out of his mind. This is why probably in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus is quoted as saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Jesus is honored everywhere, but in his own home. In John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, it says when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, did his brothers have his back? I mean, were they just trying to give him really good ministry advice? Hey man, this is how you get the word out there. No, 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 no. This was sarcasm. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. They thought he was crazy. They didn't believe. And here's James. He's the oldest of those four, probably leading the way in all this stuff. And I got to tell you, man, I feel for James. I mean, it's, it's really easy to beat James up here. But I feel for him. Because think about it. Your older brother lives the perfect childhood. I mean, how hard would that be? You're constantly being compared to him. The, the envy, the jealousy, the resentment that was probably there. I mean, we don't know this is all speculation, but I mean, think about what it would have been like for you to grow up under literally a perfect older sibling. And then guess what? So he's perfect. That's that's great and everything. He's perfect, lives the perfect childhood. But you know what? Jesus doesn't do a single miracle as a child. Not one. We read in John's gospel that the first miracle that Jesus does is the wedding in Cana at 30 years old, kicks off his ministry. So it's not like his brothers saw all this like miraculous stuff going on as a kid. It was nothing other than just perfect brother Jesus that I'm constantly being compared to. So I understand the dilemma for James probably, the the biggest thing is just very practical. It's his own brother. Like, this is a kid that he's grown up with. This is a kid that he's wrestled with, you know? And, I mean, just, just, you know, he's just grown up with it. I mean, how can my own brother be God? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was God? It'd probably take a lot, right? So... We have no evidence in the scriptures anywhere that James ever believed his brother was anything more than just his brother during his lifetime. That's Jesus' lifetime. And you figure if there was ever a time when maybe, you know, we'd, we'd see James, we really don't ever, ever see James in the picture except as a naysayer, maybe at the cross, you know, maybe when Jesus is at the cross, because that's, I mean... Forget all the jealousy and envy and forget, you know, whatever. Let bygones be bygones. But come on, man, like he's, he's, he's literally dying on a cross. And James would have been there because they were in Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. So James would have been there. James, uh, James's mother, Mary was there. Is James anywhere near the cross? Do we see him anywhere around the death of Jesus? No, he's not there because he thought his brother was crazy. He didn't believe. And yet, curiously, after Jesus dies, James appears on the scene. There's a book of the Bible called the Acts of the Apostles, and it's basically the history of the early church. It's everything that happens after Jesus' death. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and this is literally just days after Jesus has been crucified, maybe weeks It says in Acts 1.14, they all joined together. Now, this is the 12 disciples actually would have been 11 because Judas um, Iscariot hung himself. So they all joined together, the disciples, constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and check this out, with Jesus' brothers, with James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So you guys, you got to understand, this is crazy. So here's James. Thought his brother was nuts. Never, ever, ever associated with his brother during his ministry. And now, here we are in Jerusalem, and James is there praying with his mother and his brothers and the twelve, or rather the eleven, disciples. Now, this is not the time or the place to be associated with anything related to Jesus, okay? Because all the powers that be are right there in Jerusalem. So you don't want to be around Peter or any of those disciples because you didn't know. I mean, they might just take and crucify a whole bunch of you. This is, this is, you know, before this movement has taken off and exploded. Everyone is fearing for their lives. And there is James. We see James uh, mentioned in other places in the New Testament um, Paul writes about him in uh, his letter to the Galatians in chapter one, verse nineteen. And what Paul's trying to do in this part of his letter is he's just trying to establish some credibility that, like, you know, he's he's with these other followers of Jesus because you know, Paul, man, he's got a whole other checkered past. We're gonna get to that in a few weeks, um, and so. Paul's tr- trying to just establish some credibility. And so he says in uh, Galatians chapter 1, he's like, hey, guys, I was with Peter. You know, Peter, the, the head of the, the disciples. And then he says in verse 19, he said, and, so, and I saw Peter, and then I saw none of the other apostles, but only James. So he name drops James, the Lord's brother. So obviously James, was a, he was a prominent person for Paul to, to to try and establish credibility by mentioning James. And then we see in Acts chapter 12... Um, this is now the church is really starting to take off and all sorts of things are happening. And um, we see that um, Peter has just gotten out of jail. He's actually been rescued by an angel. It's this miraculous scene. And he um, knocks on the, the house of some friends who are in Jerusalem. And it's late at night and he's worried for his life because they think he's going to get arrested and killed like Jesus. And so it says in uh, verse 17 that he knocks on the door. They're excited to see him. It says, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. They're going to hear us arrest me again. And then he it says he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Check this out. Tell James, first name he mentioned, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. So James is a pillar in the early church. This is fascinating to me. I mean, this is the James that wrote a book of the New Testament. That, that book of James that's in your Bible? Um, so this guy becomes a huge deal. Huge deal. So the question is, what in the world was the turnaround for James? Because it was nothing during Jesus' lifetime at all. Well, the turnaround, I think, is best summed up by what the Apostle Paul writes in... Um, his letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. Paul writes, For what I received I pass on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And check this out, verse 7. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. So how do we explain James' turnaround from naysayer to pillar in the early church? Nothing in Jesus' lifetime. Nothing during his ministry. But he saw his brother dead, and then his brother made a personal appearance to him, raised. And it was the resurrection that turned everything around for James. And not just for James, but for all these people that claimed that Jesus appeared to them face to face. And so as a result of this resurrection... There are these disciples everywhere who are going around and they're telling everybody they meet, you know what? Jesus wasn't just a a rabbi. He wasn't just some, you know, healer, miracle worker. He wasn't just some great teacher. No, 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 no. He's actually the son of God. And the reason we know this is because he was dead and he's alive. I mean, he's appeared to us. We've seen him. And I mean, this was just, this was crazy. But you've got people, and they're empowered by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that comes when we put our faith in Jesus. And, and they're, they're telling everybody that they meet. But they weren't, and they weren't just telling Jewish people, even though Jew, Jesus was Jewish and his followers were Jewish. They're telling everybody. They're telling Gentiles. Gentiles were non-Jewish people. And Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a problem. Big problem. You know why? Because you see, Gentiles, man, they weren't following the Jewish laws. They weren't circumcised. They weren't eating the kosher meat. They were doing pretty much whatever they wanted to, and they're coming to faith in Jesus. You're thinking, well, well, so what? I mean, isn't this great? You're coming to faith in Jesus, and now you're being empowered to live this life of love and sacrificial service to the world. But, but how would Jewish and Gentile Christians interact with one another? How would this work? And so all of a sudden, the, the, the early church has a, their first massive problem. What's this going to look like? And the Jewish Christians are saying, hey, man, this is great that you're following Jesus. But you got to remember, I mean, God gave us a bunch of laws through Moses. So, you know, time to get circumcised, guys. Okay, is that exciting? Is that exciting for a Gentile man? Time to get circumcised. Like right now, let's go ahead. Let's do it. Okay, and you got to change your dietary laws. And I mean, there's all these Jewish laws and traditions, and it's, it's time to get on board with that stuff. And then there's this other group of Christians who are saying, whoa, 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 I mean, are are we sure? And so this massive controversy breaks out. And it's so so big and so difficult. We got people on all sides that basically what happens is, is there's a meeting that gets called in Jerusalem. And it's known today as the council at Jerusalem. We read about it in the book of Acts chapter 15. You guys, this is the who's who of the early church. Everybody's there. Peter's there. Paul's there everybody's there, man. I mean, just, just anyone who is anyone is at this meeting. And they're all chiming in and expressing their opinions and making their arguments. And we pick it up in Acts chapter 15, verses 13, 14, and 19. It says, when they finished, okay, so everyone's had a chance to, to say their piece. Everybody's making their arguments. When they finally finished, check out who speaks up. James speaks up. James. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, right? Jesus gave him that nickname, Peter. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. So what James is saying right here is, guys, let's not forget this this whole thing, you know, God's plan. It's not just for Jewish people. It's for Gentiles, for non-Jews as well. And then he goes on to to quote this prophet that further makes the case that that God is is trying to bring in all the nations. This This is good news for all people. So then we go down to verse 19 after he quotes that prophet. And check this out. James goes, it is my judgment. In other words, so here's the decision, guys. James gets to drop the gavel and render the decision for the early church. He says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is so amazing. I mean, you'd have to think, I mean, everything hangs in the balance. This is ultimately, what does it mean to be a Christian? Is it just faith in Jesus Or is it a whole bunch of other stuff that you have to do? This is massive. You would think that a decision like that, the verdict comes down from Peter, wouldn't you? Peter was the leader of the 12. Or or one of the disciples that was there for three years. Or, I mean, or if it wasn't one of those disciples, I mean, shoot, give it to Paul. I mean, Paul was much of the New Testament, brilliant theologian you're telling me James gets to do this? Whoa, whoa, whoa. James, the guy who didn't even believe his brother was God, the guy who said his brother was crazy, who was mocking him? I mean, James just showed up to the party. He's barely even been around. This is absolutely crazy. And just imagine with me for a second. Imagine what it must have been like for James, Okay. So he doesn't believe, totally skeptical. His brother dies, and it's kind of like, man, this is one crazy person in the family, less person I got to deal with, you know? And then, boom, what happens next? Jesus personally appears to him, and he goes, Oh my God, this whole time I've been wrong. Just imagine what it was like the first time James had to walk up to the 12, or the 11 rather. And he said, Guys, I'm so sorry so sorry for all the things that I said, how hard I made it. I mean, do you think James right there in that moment was thinking, man, this, this conversation with those disciples, man, I mean, they're going to make it difficult for me. I want to be a part of this thing, but, but they're not going to make it easy. It's going to be tough. And yet they welcomed him in, didn't they? Here he is. He's basically leading the church in Jerusalem. It's crazy. So they didn't make it difficult for him to be a part of this whole movement. And I think it is so fitting, so cool, that God in his sovereignty allows James to be the one who renders the decision. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And in that moment, you guys, this has massive implications. This is, for us today, our beliefs are because of this verse right here. Because basically, in this moment, the church decided, and all the leaders decided, James dropped the gavel on it, you don't have to be circumcised as a Christian. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to follow all these different Jewish laws. It is simply about faith in Jesus, about saying, Jesus, you lived a perfect life that I couldn't live by putting my faith in you. I am good with God. That's it. That is Christianity. No less, no more. And we have James to thank for that because he said we shouldn't make it difficult for anyone who's turning to God. And I got to tell you guys, I love this verse. This verse is actually what I love about this church, about Grace Community Church. Because it really captures so much of what we're all about here. We shouldn't make it difficult for anybody who's turning to God, who's trying to figure out faith. I mean, that's why we work so hard to create a church where no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you could come in and be part of this community, and you're not going to be judged. You're not going to be condemned. You're going to be welcomed and loved right where you are. There's not going to be any uh, pressure to believe anything there's no time frame Are you trying to make some decision about who god is there's not a bunch of hoops you have to jump through to be a part of the community here and i gotta tell you you guys you guys you have helped to create the church culture that is what grace community church is all about i, I love it i love it it's what drew me here it's what drew me to come on staff here it's what i continue to love about grace community church you know, we've been talking about how we're doing this um, big campaign this fall, this relationship series called This Is Us. And we're inviting every single person at Grace, no joke, everyone. We, we're hoping every single person could join a community group for these eight weeks of this relationship series. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, that's great, but I'm not going to do it. I mean, it's cool. I'm excited for everybody else, but I'm just not going to do it. And I just want to tell you that Grace truly is a place. Or even if you don't believe in Jesus, even if you have a million doubts and struggles, and you're like, I could never walk into a group like that, they'd shoot me. No, you actually come on in. We're all trying to better our relationships and learn more about who God is. Everyone is welcome to the party. Because we shouldn't make it difficult for anyone who's turning to God. The church should be the easiest place, not some bar, not, you know, at a friend's house. A, the church should be the easiest place to, to talk about faith in God. So, back to James. How in the world is he a hero? I mean, we know how he's unlikely, but how in the world is he a hero? What makes James heroic? Well, James could have looked on his past, the the hating, the naysaying, um, all that stuff, thinking his brother was crazy. He could have looked on all that and said, oh my goodness, I blew it. I totally blew it. How could I have been so blind? How could I have not seen? He could have looked at all that. And he could have maybe made some apologies to those disciples. And then he could have kind of gone on his way and he could have said, you know what? There's no way that they would want anything to do with me. I mean, I literally like nothing during my whole brother's lifetime. Like, I can't, I can't do it now. He's dead. Even though he's, you know, shown me as a risen God, I, I, what can I do now? But he is heroic because he did not let his past stand in the way of what God wanted to do in his life. And instead, he gets to be the one, sovereignly used by God, to preserve the integrity of, Of the gospel message of what it really means to be a Christian. He didn't let his past stand in his way. How about you? When you look on your past, when you think about the things where you have regret, where there's shame, where there's guilt, and we all have it, I have it too, you know. But when you when you look upon your past, how does that affect your faith? how does that affect how you believe God will use you? Do you reflect on some of those moments that you're not proud of and you go, well, you know, I mean, I really feel bad. I'm sorry I did that. But, you know, I mean, God obviously would would never use me now, I mean, based on some of those things. Or do you do what James did and how Paul so eloquently writes In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, do you instead forget what's behind and strain toward what's ahead, pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus? You guys, I believe that if James were here right now speaking to us, what he would say is, he would say, guys, guys, please do not let what happened in your past shape your present and your future. Don't let your past make you miss out on what God has for you. And he would say, God's not concerned about your past. God's concerned about right now going forward. He's concerned about present and future. I mean, there there are some of us who are here right now and we are letting our past stand in the way of taking that step of faith toward Jesus. There are some of us, and we don't necessarily have it all figured out, but we're intrigued with Jesus. We're drawn to Jesus. We recognize the greatness in Jesus. Jesus. But the thing that's holding us back from just saying, Jesus, I want to give you my life. I want to follow you. is We're ashamed of some of the stuff in our past. If that ever got out, oh my goodness. And so it holds us back. We say, you know, God, I just don't know that I can do it. I'm not worthy. You know, if James were here, you know what he'd say to you? Man, I mocked and doubted and scorned my brother. I thought he was crazy. His entire earthly ministry, his entire life, There's no one who is less worthy than me. And yet, he welcomed me. You can follow him. You can put your faith in him. Some of you, today is the day. Today is your day. Where you realize, you know what? It's not about the past. God's redeemed it. That's why Jesus came. God's not concerned about your past. He's concerned about right now. And today is the day that you make a decision to follow him. Others of us, we're letting our past stop us from fully following Jesus because quite frankly we're worried that if we fully follow Jesus head on we're going to be exposed i mean if we jump in and get into this uh, this is us campaign this fall and we, you know we start to jump in and build relationships with people oh my goodness maybe some of this past is going to leak out maybe they're going to find some stuff up about us that you know we're not that proud of I'm telling you, if you're worried that you will not be seen as a perfect Christian, I got great news for you. There are none. There are no perfect Christians. There's only a perfect savior who redeems every single part of our past because his concern is not our past. It is our present and it is our future. Today is a day for some of us to say, I'm back in, I'm fully, fully following you Jesus. Let me pray for you. God, we just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for this powerful reminder through James that our past, our guilt, our regret, our shame, it does not disqualify us from following after you, that you are the God of redemption. God, help us to forget what is behind and strain toward what's ahead. In Christ's name, amen.